and sin entered the picture. And it's way worse than we realize. So that's what we've been talking about these last few weeks. And we're going to talk about that again today. We'll, we'll conclude that study today. So beyond that, we need to know how, not only who we are, what God created us for, how far we've fallen, but what Christ has done. That's our third heading. What Christ has done to remedy the problem. And then fourth, there's the call to respond to that by faith alone. Embracing that message as news. Turning from your own wisdom, turning from your own sin to Him. All right? So we'll, we'll talk about all those in weeks to come. So if we're talking about our purpose, um, do you remember the, the, the three, the reason I'm keying in, we're spending, this is our third week on man. All right? So just a little, so you can know what's going on in my brain. Um, I wasn't able to get through everything last week, which is part of the reason we have a third week on man. But I think one guy that I read has said that anthropology, the study of man, is the issue of our day. And I agree with him. So every generation of Christians have sort of an, an issue that sort of defines what they're about and, and how they're the issue, the, the thing that's in question, confusion within the church and in the culture. And anthropology is that issue for us. Um, what is man? Why do we exist? Uh, there's confusion that's rampant. All the issues of our day that we often talk about are rooted in this basic misunderstanding of the nature and purpose of man. So that's why we're spending a little more time on it. It actually probably warrants a complete series, like a longer series where we can apply some of these things. We talk about gender, work, technology, all that stuff that's kind of connected to, to man, but we're not going there now. What I just want you to see from our study is why we were created, and then how far we've fallen. So, let's think about that. Why were we created? What were some of those headings that we talked about? Okay, we were created to reflect God, yes. What was the word that went alongside of that? Sonship, yes, sonship. Or, we're made in His image. So, as a son reflects a father, you know, we're, I think, Genesis 5 language, that's, that's there. As a son reflects a father, so we reflect God. God is our is, is humanity's father in the sense that he, he brought us forth in his own image. And we're the only people in creation, the only part of God's creation that, that is, is said to image him. All right? So we represent him. We're made to reflect what he is like to the world. What else are we made for? To reign with him, right? Reigning with Christ. And what's the word, with, or reigning with God, for God? What is the word on, that we, that we uh, tag to that one? Kingship, right, kingship. So humans are regal, even the, the least noble among us. Like human beings were created to have a regal status, to, to rule this world, to take dominion, that's the biblical word, take dominion on God's behalf for his glory. Genesis 1 and 2. So we reign for God, kingship. And then what else? It's our third R. We reside with God, which word we don't use much. We, li- we, we live with Him, dwell with, with God. We were created to, to live with Him, be in relationship with Him, to serve Him. And what is the biblical category for that? Priesthood. And I know we don't think about relationship and priesthood, but that's, that's, the, that's the category that's connected to this. We, we live in His presence, like the priests, and we serve Him, like the priests did in the Old Testament. So these categories, sonship, kingship, and priesthood, you're going to see those go through the entire Bible. And so in Revelation, the church is 
is called a kingdom of priests. We're called um, kings and priests to reign with him forever, right? We reflect his image. That's what Christ is remaking us into. So, we need to know these categories. That's our purpose. There's a lot more we can say about that. Um, but we also need to know what else about us. Not just why we were made, but how far we've fallen, our sinfulness, what we've done, what went badly wrong, and what remains badly wrong with human beings. It's the bad news before the good news. So we, we looked, we rebelled against our Creator King, and we have sinful natures now. And it's, it's so pervasive, and it's often um, minimized. So, we started last week, and we looked at this at the fall, where it all began. So, just real quick, how did Satan tempt Eve? What, what happened in that interchange? What was the specific thing he went after? Okay, God's reputation, how so? Yes. Yes. So, Genesis 1 and 2, it's just God is good. He's a creator, and he's a good creator, right? And then the snake comes in. Adam's supposed to be guarding this garden, supposed to be keeping it. Snake comes in, a talking snake, no less, and he defies the words of the living God, and he begins to sow seeds of doubt about the character of God and his goodness to the woman. We find out that the man's not on some other side of the garden. He's right there beside of her. He's failing in his duties as well. And the woman is deceived. She gives to Adam. He eats. And catastrophe happens. So how would you summarize what went wrong at the fall? Did they just like eat a fruit? Okay, hierarchy was out of order. How so? Yeah, creation was on its head, right? So we talked about that last week. There's God, man, woman, creation. So they were given, man and the woman were given to, to take, have dominion over the creatures, the beasts of the field. And the snake is a beast of the field, it says in Genesis 3. And the snake's talking to the woman. He's having authority over the woman. The woman's having authority over the man. And they transgress and try to have authority over God. They seek life apart from obedience and faith in God. They seek wisdom their own way, apart from trusting in the revelation that God gives. They thought they had the right to assess what is good and evil on their own, apart from God. They sought to become like God apart from trusting Him. We rebelled against God's purpose for us as human beings. We are the terrorists in God's kingdom. And the results are catastrophic. So what were they? What were some of them? Okay, death. Yeah, definitely spiritual death and eventually physical death. What else? Painful labor. Yep, both for the woman and the man in the respective spheres that related to the mission that they were supposed to have. Yeah, so the mission is going to be difficult now. Very difficult. What else happened right after they sinned? Yeah, that's, that was like the, the final, final blow. They were removed from God's presence, the God, the, His life-giving garden, forbidden from the tree of life. Yeah. Instant blame shifting. Day one, moment one, right? They start blaming. It was, it was the, the woman you gave me. So God calls Adam on the carpet. It was one of my fault, her fault. She gets called on the carpet. It's the snake's fault. You know, and so there's, just, there's instant blame shifting day one. Nobody's taking responsibility, even though God gave them the, the opportunity. Yeah, what else? 
They're shamed. Yep, so they're covering their nakedness. They realize they're naked. They're ashamed of it. They try to seek their own solutions for their sin and shame. And it's pitiful, right? What else? Murder. Eventual murder. Yeah, how so? Okay, so, so how's that related? Yeah, totally, yep. Now, as enticing as that is, we're not going to go down the seat of the serpent, seat of the woman path, because uh, I spent too long on that last week, okay? So if you, want, if you want more on that, or that was confusing to you last week, um, I got some questions about that, so I, I shored up some of that stuff, and I have it in document form. So if you want some of that, just let me know, and I'll, I'll send it to you, just some, some data, textual data on that. So now, the rest of you who weren't here are like, what? is he talking about? That's okay. All right. So, that was a fall. We got we to move forward. All right? We have to move forward. So, what I want to do this morning, you know, the fall is like, is like the shot that then is, has its reverberations through the Bible and into our lives today. So, there's these reverberations or these illusions of the fall throughout the biblical story. I think we talked about that last week. Did we talk about that? kind of opened the can, right, and then just ran on. Um, yeah, so let's, let's first talk about that, all right? Let's, let's structure our time today in just talking about the reverberations of the fall throughout the biblical story. Then I want to talk quickly about some statements, some key statements in the, in the Bible about our, our current sin, our sin natures, uh, and what that means. I want you to see where they are in the Bible so you can know them. And then um, I want us to make sure that we realize this ourselves and we kind of battle some of those tendencies of our hearts to say we're not really that bad, okay? So it's kind of the three, three areas I want to talk about this morning. So let's just quick uh, look at some of these reverberations that fall throughout the biblical story. <clears throat> if you remember back to Genesis 3, um, there were these key words that happened in the story so you can flip back there real quick, and we'll just blitz, we'll blitz through this. My advice to you would be just to write down these references. Listen right now, and then write them down, and then go back and look at them later. Or just ask me for my document, and I'll give them to you. Um, Genesis 3, these key terms are um, saw, good, took, gave. All right, so she saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, yada, yada, yada. She took of its fruit, there's a third word, and she also gave, fourth word, some to her husband. So those are some key terms. They're not all going to show up in every place, but those are some of the key terms I want you to, to sort of underline and recognize that the later biblical authors are going to use this phrase, these, 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 this language to, to evoke the fall. To, rem- to remind you that the fall has reverberations, has consequences, that no one's free from the effects of sin. Um, flip forward, or actually one more, one more phrase I want you to see. In verse 17 of chapter 3, you see this phrase, he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. You see that? Listen to the voice of your wife. You were influenced by her when you knew better. You should have stood 
Because you did that, because you, you let yourself be influenced by your wife who was deceived, and then he, he goes on. You've listened to the voice of your wife. So underline that too. That'll be another, that'll be another phrase. So <clears throat> you move forward just a couple, couple chapters into chapter 6. You're going to see these happen again. And again, I'm just going to open the can and close it real quick. But this is talking about that really crazy passage of the, uh, the Nephilim and all that good stuff in Genesis 6. But I want you to see, right out of the gate, this is when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, chapter 6, verse 1. The sons of God saw, there it is, that the daughters of man were attractive, that's in Hebrew, good. They saw the men were attractive, same word, and they took as their wives any they chose. See those? They saw, they were good or attractive, and they took. So they've transgressed, in other words. So the, the reverberations of the fall is being echoed here in this in this chapter here, whoever these sons of God are, and whatever they're doing, is clearly wrong. They've clearly violated something, and you see the consequences of that in chapter 6 all the way through, which is ultimately a worldwide flood. Right? So, that's one example. I'll give you another one. Fast forward to Genesis 16. Here we have another um, example of, of Abraham, the head of the Abrahamic covenant, another son of God, um, is, is tasked by God to be faithful, to fulfill his creation purposes in and through the family of Abraham. But notice, chapter 16, uh, God's promised to Abraham he's going to have a son, and that's not happening. So they take matters in their own hands. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, chapter 16, verse 1, had borne him no children. So wow, they, they, they had a son, and it's in the line of the seed of the woman, but that hasn't happened yet. So she's borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, or Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go, in my, go into my servant, that, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now listen. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So you think, hmm, kind of heard that before. So, verse 3, after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Do you see that? She took Hagar, gave Hagar, and Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. It's clear allusions back to the fall. So another, another transgression here is found by another covenant head, which is Abraham. Now we're going to fast forward all the way to Joshua. So Joshua 7, 20. This is very significant as well because Abraham's family has multiplied. They go down to Egypt. They get enslaved in Egypt, and God frees them from Egypt. They bring, God brings them out into the wilderness, and God calls Israel his covenant son, corporate son. So think about all those things we've talked about before, the purpose of humanity. Now it's being centralized in the, the nation. And they're going to be brought into a new land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, a land that has God's blessing, a land that God's going to dwell with them in. Right? So they enter into the land... And there's another fall-type 
scenario in Joshua 7 with Achan. So God's basically told them, you know, I want you to go in, I want you to destroy this city, don't take anything, and devote it all to destruction. Well, Achan thinks he's going to go his own way here and do something different. So, Achan in, in chapter 20, he takes some of the things he's not, or in verse, chapter 7, he takes some of the things he's not supposed to take. He's called on the carpet. Well, there's a lot of stuff I'm skipping over here. Uh, the, Israel begins to suffer because of his rebellion. And then Joshua, with the help of the Lord, smokes him out, essentially. And he's called on the carpet in verse 19. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory. Notice that, my son. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw, keyword, among the spoil, a beautiful, that's good, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, that's not a keyword, but it's interesting, then I coveted them and took them. Is our keyword. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, which is, has silver underneath. So, this family, this entire family gets judged for this sin. Swallowed up by the Lord. Israel's purified as they're going into the land. So, fast forward again. Last one we're going to talk about. We're going to move forward. <clears throat> Second Samuel 11. With David and Bathsheba. Another covenant figure, another son of God. Second Samuel eleven it says, in the spring of the year, verse one, when the time the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw keyword from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, good. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And then the story goes on. And we know that this is the, the, sort of one of the ultimate transgressions of David. So my point is that the biblical authors here use this language of the fall. You see it reverberated throughout the scriptures so that we see what Solomon says later no, there is no one who does not sin. Every covenant figure, every son of God, sins. Um, they, there, is, there is no one faithful to ultimately fulfill God's purposes for creation. There's no human being on earth, on this side, that can fulfill his purposes for creation. We need another son. And you know where that's going. So, there's these, okay, that's the first big category this morning, reverberations or allusions to the fall throughout the biblical story, and particularly in these sort of covenant figures. And now let's talk about some other sort of direct statements. I was kind of cleaning that up from last week because I sort of hit that really fast and I didn't give you guys much data. I felt bad about that later. So that was my cleanup from last week. Now, let's look at some of the significance uh, of the rebellion from other parts of Scripture. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. 
David knew that he was sinful from birth. So interestingly, here is uh, his repentance from that sin we just looked at with Bathsheba. Um, how he repented of that in Psalm 51. But I just want you to see this language with your own eyes. He's talking about his sin in verse 5. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying his mother had an illicit relationship with his father. He's saying that even his conception... Iniquity runs so deep that his conception, at the moment of conception, can be referred to as being in sin. In sin. So, it runs deep. The effects of the fall runs deep. David knew it. Solomon also knew it. You can write down 1 Kings 8, 46, because we've talked about this at different points. King Solomon knew that every person on the planet sins. So in his prayer for the temple, he says, if they sin against you, he's talking about the nation, if if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. You are angry with them, and and he's basically pleading with the God to be merciful to the people who turn their face toward the temple and pray in in humble repentance. But what's driving that is Solomon knows in 1 Kings 8.46 that there is no one who does not sin. And then Israel's prophets also knew this painfully well. Painfully well, man, take Jeremiah. There's so many examples we could take, but Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. I think Rich even alluded to this earlier. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, or another translation would be desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So this sort of exasperation by the prophet saying that your inner being, like the core of who you are, the thing that makes all of your decisions and, and, and thinks through everything. Like in the Hebrew, heart is the this, this central part of you. It's, it's your inner person. It's what's most core about you. And the most core of you is deceitful above all things. Not just deceitful. It's like the most deceitful thing, he said. And it's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then we see who can In verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Whoa. So only the Lord can see the full blackness of your heart. You can't even see it. That's incredible. So, testimony from Israel's prophets. Paul continues in this chain in Romans 1. So much here in Romans. I'm not. I'm just going to skim off the surface because Pastor Brian's going to launch out here on you know in Romans soon. It's going to be incredible. But Romans one, you can just write that down. Uh, Romans one twenty three is or Romans chapter one and it's opening. This op- some of these opening paragraphs. It's like Paul is commenting on creation in the fall, in chapter one, and he says a number of things. He says we've exchanged the glory of God that we possessed as, as God's image bearers. We exchanged that for images resembling mortal man. He says in verse 25 of Romans 1 that we've exchanged the truth for a lie 
And I love the singularness of that, like the truth for a lie, right? We're fundamentally a deceived humanity, just echoing what everybody else has said all the way through this. He says in verse 25, the end of verse 25, that we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So we're fundamentally an idolatrous humanity. We don't worship and serve the true and living God. We've exchanged Him for idols. And we go after those things, thinking that they are God. And the culmination of this in in Romans 3 is that Paul says, all are under sin, meaning all are held captive by sin. Every person. And that sets Paul up for his good news in chapter 3. If you've switched to another book, we've looked at this in depth. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in sin. Every human being. We're dead in the sins that we walk in, the sins that we live in. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 14, Paul says not, not only are we dead, as, as though it's like hard to get worse than that, but Paul says that we, in our, in our unbelieving state, that we in and of ourselves are actually unable to understand truth apart from the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Listen to this. The natural person, meaning the unbeliever, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's why God's got to act, right? That's why he asked Ephesians 2, make alive through the power of the gospel. Because according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So we step back from a list like that and we're like, I've got to be honest with you. I don't feel that bad. Right? Right or wrong? I mean, we know what this says. I'm not trying to bait you into like, I'm going to hammer you, right? I'm just trying to draw this out. Like, you don't, you don't think this way about yourself outside of Christ, that I am that bad. You know, what do we do? It could be like, that guy, right? Or that girl. At least I'm not like that. There's probably already examples floating around in your mind. Like, hey, Am I really that bad? How can I be that bad? There are clearly people worse than me on a scale. Yada, 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 right? Be careful. What is your heart? According to Jeremiah 17. Above everything else, deceitful. So be careful. Do not be wise in your own eyes. To use Proverbs language in Proverbs 3, or Solomon's language in Proverbs 3. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you have accurate self assessments. Remember, your heart is deceitful above everything else. So I think one thing that happens, especially in the church and church culture with kids growing up in it, it's not the fault of the church or the church culture. It just happens. Liberty University, those kinds of things. We sort of, we minimize our sin to the point that we think we're good. Like we function that way. We may say, oh, I'm a sinner. But we function in a way that we think that we're good. Um, I, I kind of call it kind of tongue-in-cheek good kid syndrome. Like we think, think we're okay. We're not that bad. We elevate, what's happening is we elevate ourselves in pride 
above other people. And our self-righteousness blinds us to our own inward depravity. Okay? That's what's actually going on when we think we're not that bad. We're full of pride and blind to our own inward depravity. Now, let me caveat that. There is a reality, according to the Bible, that some sins are worse than other sins. I'm not saying that's not the case. That is the case according to the text. Additionally, there are some texts that imply greater punishment for some sins than other sins by God. And finally, some sins have more severe consequences in this life than other sins have, right? So if you hate somebody versus you murder them, like that's two different consequences for that. But do we really want to start comparing ourselves with other people? With other sinners like us? Imagine one cadaver saying to another cadaver, like, well, your dad's as bad as my dad, deadness. Like, how dumb is that? Like, no, we don't want to do this sort of horizontal comparison because we're all dead outside of Christ. So, let me, let me press back on that one thought of like, I'm not that bad, am I? You are not that bad outside of Christ because God restrains you. God restrains you. Think about it. Think about it. What do you think might restrain the full manifestation of sin in the world today? Any thoughts? Okay, morality. Where does that come from? Okay, God, yes. What else? What has God given to us that restrains sin? Government authority. Yeah, why don't you steal? Because you'll get arrested. Praise God, right? Why don't you go out and kill the guy that cut you off at the highway, even though inwardly you want to murder him? Why don't you do that? It's illegal. Why do many people not have sex before they're married? They might get that girl pregnant if they're kind of half thinking about it the right way, right? I'm just saying there's a restraining influence on sin and immorality because of consequences. Think about the influence of your parents. Man, that was huge for me. I didn't sin, not because I was a believer, because I wanted to please Christ, because I was afraid of my parents. Like, I did not want to displease them. You know, and they gave, they, they helped me think that through very clearly. From a little guy to even when I was an adult. But once I realized I can pull the wool over their eyes and they have no idea, and I kind of got slick at that, guess what happened? The full manifestation, well, not full, but a manifestation of my heart began to happen, and I began to go headlong into sins that I could cover up. Because that restraining influence waned. The restraining influence of law, government, punishment for those things. The restraining influence of culture, I think that's what you were getting at when you said morality. Western civilization has been built on a Judeo-Christian culture. And that has had a restraining influence on sin. Praise God. And that's going away. That is like not happening anymore. We don't have that same kind of culture that was built upon that Judeo-Christian influence. So what happens when the restraints lift when we're not in Christ? We start murdering children. It's not long before they're going to come for you. They can murder children because they get in their way to their life of pleasure. 
What happens when you get in their way? Like it's not going to stop. Restraints lift. What happens? We give vent to the sinful passions of our hearts. Even if we've sinned one time, just once, one time in our lives, hypothetically, that one sin reveals something about your heart. It reveals that you're dead. We sin and don't then become sinners. We are sinners, dead, and that's why we sin. Paul says that we walk in our transgressions. Being dead, Ephesians 2, we walk in sin, meaning we live our lives in sin, the specific acts of sin, because we are dead. We like to think of ourselves as otherwise perfect and only occasionally committing isolated mistakes. However, we have what is called in the Bible a sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. We sin wholly out of this nature corrupted by sin. Our individual sins, in other words, tell on us. They reveal that we are guilty and dead. So that means then that we're both victims and perpetrators of sin. We receive sin against, from people, so it makes us victims, but we're also perpetrators of that. So we can't, we can't claim the victim card. Even if you had a horrific upbringing, which some of you may have had, that doesn't excuse your response to that. They will be held accountable for the horrors that they perpetrated on you. But your sinful heart responds to those sins, and you become culpable. So this makes all of humanity then, every person, a target of God's eternal wrath, Romans 1.18. He would not be good if he let that go. He says in, in chapter 2 in Romans that we store up wrath for ourselves, that we are children of wrath, Ephesians 2. The goodness of God compels him to exercise judgment upon rebels, and he wouldn't be just if he did not. We'll end here, but only until human beings are ready to take responsibility for sin are we then ready to receive the gospel. And only then. Say it negatively. If we're not ready to, rec- if we're not ready to receive this about ourselves that God declares, what does he say in First John? We make him a liar because he has told us that we're this bad if the spirit if if he's at work he will be convincing and convicting of sin before he brings the good news of the gospel before he brings the medicine that we need he convinces us that we need the cure so for you Let a deepening understanding of your sin, of what you're capable of outside of Christ, let that humble you. Let that cause you to to go to Him, to rejoice even more in Him. The the answer is not to self-deprecate and roll around in the sinfulness that we've just looked at. The answer is to go to Him. Go to Him in full confession like we've seen in 1 John. Let it be a reminder that we stand before the holy God only in and through Christ and His righteousness alone. 
And next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about him, finally, right? We're going to talk about him. So thanks for your patience as we, as we span these three weeks talking about man. It's a doctrine that we grossly misunderstand today. We're getting clarity on it now, but next week, we're going to look at the Savior. We're going to see, in light of this black backdrop, he is the diamond that shines so brightly, all right? So I'm thrilled to be able to talk about him. Let's pray. Father, your, your intent is to humble us so that we experience forgiveness full and free, cleansing full and free, resurrection, life, freedom now to follow you. So I pray that you would um, hem us in, back us into a corner until we are ready to admit what you say in your word. If we're unready now, make us suffer. Teach us by experience that we do not know the difference between good and evil so that we would turn to you. I pray that in our evangelism we would be clear about sin because we love other people. And that we would know that until you convince of sin, someone's not going to come to faith in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.